0: The conversation about gender discrimination in the workplace and the legal workplace in particular has been changing significantly over the last couple of years, I think, as a follow up to the Me Too movement.
1: People who are going to these firms are more aware of the questions that they need to ask. It's not enough to say anymore. Look at our handful of awards that show that we are great to women or, or great on diversity issues. You know, that only tells a part of the story.
2: Welcome to the award winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
3: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from a sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out, entitled How to Get Sued and a Christmas Children's Book, The Sled. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Over the years, the quest to obtain gender diversity within big law firms has been a difficult one. Just recently, on April 3rd, A $200 million lawsuit was filed against the Jones Day law firm by six former female associates, alleging they were discriminated against based on gender, pregnancy, and maternity. In response to the litigation, Jones Day has dismissed these claims, citing firm statistics highlighting their support of women employees. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this gender discrimination in big law. We'll look at the litigation, the current workplace environment in big law firms, and educating firms and companies about gender and pregnancy discrimination, as well as the importance of gender diversity within the workplace. To do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Here to discuss today's topics is Catherine Rubino. She's the senior editor for Above the Law. In 2013, Catherine started writing a column for Above the Law pseudonymously about her experiences in the legal industry and has authored guest columns at Corporate. She's written extensively about today's topic. Welcome to the show, Catherine.
1: Hi there. Thanks so much for having me on.
3: And our next guest is Deborah Marcuse. She's the managing partner of Sanford Heiser Sharp's Baltimore, Maryland office. She's a lead attorney in both the Jones Day and Morrison Forster gender discrimination cases. Welcome to the show, Deborah.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Deborah, I wonder if you could start us out, please, with a kind of a background on what precipitated the uh, Jones Day and Morrison Forster lawsuits and what the general basis for the allegation is against both of the law firms.
0: Well, I guess what precipitated both of them, in a sense, is that the conversation about gender discrimination in the workplace and the legal workplace in particular has been changing significantly over the last couple of years, I think, as a follow-up to the Me Too movement. And, you know, that movement started with a focus on sexual harassment in particular, but fortunately has broadened to a discussion of all of the different consequences of sex stereotyping in the workplace and sort of related, um, you know, all the consequences from pay and promotion to ultimately you know, people getting pushed out or actually terminated. And so um, in both of these cases, you see what we hadn't necessarily seen in at least a lot of Sanford Heisler's prior cases, which is younger lawyers, associates, instead of partners coming forward with these kinds of claims. And in the Jones Day case, two of them who felt that they were able to come out under their own names, which I think um, both their sense that they were able to do this and the reception that they've had in so doing signals that we are in a different place in terms of there not being so much of a perception anymore that coming forward with claims like these will redound to somehow discredit uh, the people bringing forward the claims, as opposed to the entities who are on the you know defense side.
3: Catherine, you've written about some experiences you've had. You know, as a member of big law firms myself, I've seen some pretty horrible treatment of women. Uh, Can you share with us some of the Particular issues that you've seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, at Above the Law, we get a lot of information from people who are at their firms, but maybe not ready to kind of pull the trigger on a lawsuit. Uh, who have various complaints, and and I think that you know Deborah's right that in a post Me Too era, we are seeing a lot more, um, a lot more people being willing to come forward and talk about it. Um, when I wrote about the most recent Jones Day complaint, which is actually the second, I believe, against Jones Day. Um, when I wrote about it, I was got so many back channel emails from people I either knew personally or just fans from the website saying, yes, this is definitely what's going on there, because they they felt like they had a very similar experience from their time, either at Jones Day or other big law firms. So you're getting a lot of kind of talking about it and kind of that, that stuff behind the scenes. And one of the things, at least from an above the law perspective that I think is particularly interesting about the case against Jones Day is really what's under attack is their black box compensation system. Um, the majority of big law firms, of course, are lockstep. If you're a second year, you get paid like a second year, and everyone gets paid like a second year. But at Jones Day, they take a, a different approach. Not only do they not share what you'll necessarily be making after your first year at the firm, um, but they also c- discourage anyone talking about what they make. And that kind of lack of transparency, and in fact, you know, overt secrecy that they try to, to foster there, uh, really is an environment. Environment that is ripe for all sorts of, you know, biases to come out in decision making without, you know, obviously knowing specifically what's going on in the case, but, you know, w- without that kind of transparency, there's just a lot of room for all sorts of unfortunate uh, things to to become part of the compensation question, people's personalities, whether they, you know, in the complaint they talk about, you know, women feeling that they were dinged on their compensation because they weren't sparkly enough. And, you know, this really kind of goes into all sorts of stereotypes about what women should be like, particularly in the workplace. And I think that's really what's interesting, um, really, about the Jones Day lawsuit, uh, lawsuits, uh, compared to some of the other big law uh, lawsuits, because you know readers of Above the Law have hated the black box compensation system for years. We've written multiple articles trying to kind of crack it anonymously. People send us their compensation information so that you know associates at the firm have more information, so that they're aware of what the going rate is and how they kind of stack up. Because without that information, really. Uh, people are, associates are really in the dark in sort of some of the worst ways.
3: And to be fair, we have not invited or do not have with us today a, a member of Jones Day to respond to it. But I do note that They have put out some press releases, uh, and Deborah, I'll ask you for your response to these, but they're, for example, they make a significant point that uh, the percentages that they have, 70% of women promoted to partnership over the past decade had taken or were on family leave at the time of their promotion. You know, 14 out of the 33 U.S. lawyers promoted to partnership were women. 71% of those had taken family leave. Those types of, of statistics are out there, which sounds one side of the story, but Deborah, what's the response to that?
0: I mean, I think the response is in the allegations, in the complaint, where women from around the country had very, very different experiences. I think notable among these are examples that were given by uh, some of the plaintiffs in the allegations of, uh, you know, even at events that were focused on women being successful in the workplace, you know, asking questions about how to be successful as the mother of children in a number of cases or flagging where it seemed like there were partners who were not treating, you know, women or, you know, mothers this equitably, even talking about those things in supposedly safe spaces didn't turn out to be safe for the women who came forward here. So we often see statistics, um, you know, certainly the allegations in the complaint present a very different picture. And I think we're just going to have to see what unfolds in discovery. You know, one thing that I'll say that's striking from my perspective about jones day i've never seen um it's just it's very striking how much of their secrecy they put out there on their website for everyone to see. So it's sort of on the one hand, this black box, but on the other hand, they're very out there with their black box. They really embrace this as an ethos, also fairly subjective modes of making decisions about performance, which Catherine can maybe speak to the broader big law context To me, this is pretty unfamiliar, you know, uncommon. But Catherine, do you feel that way as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that Certainly, you know, on, at Above the Law, we're against kind of uh, a lack of transparency. That's why, you know, we do cover raise information and bonus information, perhaps perhaps too much. <laughs> but, we, you know, we do cover that because I think it is really important. And, and I think that particularly we get a lot of readers who are in law school and making decisions about what law firms to go to, and no one thinks that they're not going to get the top of the compensation pile and i think that that you know for a certain type of person you know it seems appealing to say oh you're not getting paid lockstep you're getting paid based on how great your work is and you know everyone who is a lawyer went to good law schools you know had was Academically excellent their entire lives assumes that they're going to be the top of the pile. Um, But that's just not the way any of those numbers can possibly work. You know, somebody kind of has to get below market in order for someone else to, or lots of people have to get below market or for a couple people to get above market salaries. And it is really problematic. And I don't think that, you know, people who are making the decisions to go to Jones Day, either in law school or as laterals, are necessarily thinking about who you get placed on your first case with uh, has such a giant impact as to whether or not you make the salary you thought you were going to make when you signed up at the firm, Um, whether it's in terms of the number of hours, about whether or not your personalities, uh, you know, work and they give you more work, or if they have, you know, any sort of expectations of you that, you know, may not be accurate. So I think that it's something that's very important that associates need to, you know, be thinking about when they're making their choice um, of law firms. And, you know, as much as people, I think there's a certain type of person who kind of bristles against the notion of lockstep compensation. But I really think that lockstep compensation in big law is a really great thing that allows work to be more equitably distributed, allows Uh, you know, everyone to have an opportunity to get sort of the best and the worst of the cases. Um, And I don't think everyone necessarily realizes how important that will be uh, until they're at a firm that doesn't do lockstep.
3: Deborah, let's talk about how difficult gender discrimination cases are to litigate, and especially ones where you have highly paid uh, employees uh, presenting to a jury of people who are not as highly paid
0: sure i mean i think that the real difficulties of these kinds of cases aren't really you know i think they they happen before getting to a jury i mean At this point, none of these cases have actually gone to trial, um, you know, in terms of the big law cases that Sanford Heisler-Sharp has handled. And I do think that at the end of the day, juries are sympathetic to sort of basic ideas of... You know, basic notions of equity—that it's not right to pay two people differently for the same work based on their gender—and I think also juries tend to be—they recognize. Catherine mentioned something about you know people being perceived in ways that are inaccurate, and I think that that is one of the most frustrating things about sex stereotyping is. This feeling, you know, where you end up is this place where you could do anything objectively. You could demonstrate over and over again, for example, that you are incredibly committed to your job. And yet somehow there can still be this perception of you as, oh, she's a mother. She's not committed to her job, you know, or other kinds of stereotypes that have absolutely nothing to do with how someone, you know, what someone is actually like or the nature of their work. And so I think if that is properly presented to a jury, you know, even people who haven't experienced something exactly like that can understand how difficult it is to day after day be sort of trying to prove yourself in every way and objectively succeeding and have the reaction to you continually being driven not by what you're objectively doing or accomplishing, but instead by some set of perceptions about you that are ultimately driven by your gender or in particular your gender and the fact that you are a parent. But these cases have a level of procedural complexity before you even get to this point that is also immense. Um, You know, in this case um, and in the Marson and Forrester case, we're not dealing with issues of is a law partner someone who can bring a case under state and federal discrimination law or no, um, which is a question revolving around whether that person is a partner in name only or in actual substantive ways. Um, We're also not dealing in these cases with arbitration agreements, uh, which has certainly been a big topic in or around big law of late, Um, and I'll give a shout out to the Pipeline Parity Project, which is, you know, even as the case law relating to arbitration goes in one direction, law students who are the ones who are going to have to take jobs as lawyers pretty soon are looking at the big law landscape and saying, you know, we're not going to tolerate some of these practices, regardless of whether um, arbitration agreements are being upheld in court. Yeah,
1: just to, just to echo your Hang on com- just
0: a moment,
3: Catherine, and we'll get right back to you. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice, from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams and we're joined by Catherine Rabino, Senior Editor for Above the Law, and Deborah Marcuse, the managing partner of Sanford Heisler Sharp's Baltimore, Maryland office. So Catherine, right before the break, you were gonna jump in and make a comment.
1: Yes, uh, just to echo Deborah's comments about the Pipeline Parity Project. For those who maybe not be following this, it's a group of predominantly Harvard law students that have been organizing and putting a lot of pressure on big law firms that still have mandatory arbitration agreements. They've gotten several firms to change their policy, um, and there have social media presence you know, with hashtags, as well as they're actually pounding the pavement and and handing out leaflets in front of the offices of some of the firms that have refused to get rid of their mandatory arbitration policies in order to bring further attention to it.
0: And we should note that law is not the only industry where this is happening. I believe that Google has now rescinded its arbitration agreements. Is that right? I think I remember reading about that recently. Um, And so the tech industry is another one where You know, again, regardless of where the law is going, there are also extra legal considerations. If you're a firm trying to attract the best and the brightest and the response of the best and the brightest is we don't want to be at a firm that, you know, wants to shield its violations of the law potentially from public scrutiny in these ways.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's really been part of the, the positive outcomes of the Me Too era. Um, I think that arbitration agreements became, you know, a topic of current events. And even though you would think that, you know, the legal profession would always kind of care about about uh, arbitration agreements, I think that it really did make it a focus Um, And really allowed people to rally against it and and to be aware of the firms that they were applying to and what their position on mandatory arbitration was. Because a lot of times people may not have even been thinking about whether or not their potential firms that they had an offer from had arbitration agreements. You know, that just wasn't one of their considerations. And now it really is one of the the big issues that we're hearing a lot of law students when they're applying to firms are really considering.
3: Deborah, as we look forward in the litigation, what's the ultimate resolution that you're after? What's the remedies that you seek? And are we ever going to be able to change perceptions like the ones you've been talking about? What's it going to take?
0: Oh, I think absolutely it's already happening and it's not just because of litigation. There are firms that have taken affirmative steps to address issues like this because they recognize that it's good for business and it's the right thing to do. Um, You know, they're looking at perhaps rates of attrition you know, or failure to successfully recruit the people that they want to recruit. And they're saying, what can we do to change this? But I've definitely had students, you know, my partner, Kate Meeting, and I taught a class at one point a couple months ago at a law school. And the students were asking us, you've got all these cases, but we're going to have to go get jobs at these places. Um, You know, what advice can you give us? And, it's notable, you know, a lot of law firms have really almost every law firm has policies that may on the surface pass muster um, in terms of, you know, this looks like a good place. But people are realizing they really have to dig deeper and hear from, you know, actual people who are there, what their experiences have been like, and also see if there are other ways to sort of flush out, you know, what a law firm is really doing. And I mean, I have to say, you know, one thing that I said to them is increasingly you're seeing firms where people who have brought these cases are going. And, you know, to my mind, what more striking sign of you know that a firm is a good place to be that it's embracing people who are coming forward and fighting back against inequitable practices at perhaps a prior employer and then coming coming now and saying, "This place is great, this place is what I had always hoped that." you know, my employer would be like to begin with. You know, some of us are very lucky and we happen on that great employer and an equitable employer early on in our careers, but for other people, it takes some time to land. And I imagine, I don't know, Catherine, it sounds like you're hearing from a lot of people that are pretty concerned about what their prospects are and how to tell whether a firm is really equitable.
1: Yeah, and I I think part of the problem is that there's so much kind of contradictory information. Obviously, you have a lawsuit against MOFO with seven plaintiffs, and they also were named this week to the list of most family-friendly law firms by Yale Law School. So, you know, (laughs) know, there's a lot of of contradictory information. And I think that part of that's also because of the nature of big law. You know, oftentimes different partners are siloed out uh, and, you know, there may be the most wonderful, perfect brilliant person at the firm but it may not be somebody you ever interact with because of you know various assignments that you've gotten and you you know become sort of the property of a particular attorney of a particular partner and so i think that there is there is a lot of kind of contradictory information out there but i think that what's is helping is that people who are going to these firms are more aware of the questions that they need to ask. It's not enough to say anymore, look at our handful of awards that show that we are great to women or or great to uh, on diversity issues. You know, that is only tells a part of the story. And I think that making, you know, increasing awareness about the types of questions you have to ask and, you know, Being aware, it's it's okay if you lateral out of a firm because it's not the right fit for you, whether it's because of, you know, discriminatory issues or just because it's just not the right fit for you. um, And kind of increasing uh, the mobility of associates really kind of helps that issue, I think.
0: I mean, it's an interesting thing from my perspective. I don't have the background that some of my colleagues even have of having in a previous existence worked in big law. Um, but so, you know, and so perhaps my perspective on it is a bit jaundiced having come through, you know, it's it's the sort of outsider's perspective. But I have to say, I don't necessarily view those things as um, contradictory so much as indicative of the great distance that the industry has to go before it reaches, you know, true equity. It is possible, you know, I mean, we just go through this sort of lawsuit at a time, but It is possible that the best law firms that are out there right now among the really well-known ones are the same ones that are having these problems. Because the bar is just low at this point. (laughs) But I think it's being pushed upward, you know, by people who are willing to come forward and draw attention to practices that may be endemic to the industry, but also aren't actually lawful. And that's the pushback we get sometimes is, oh, well, why are you going after us? There are so many worse firms you could be addressing. And, you know, we take them as we find them and in some ways i think going to a place that is advertised as particularly friendly to you know to women or to mothers and then experiencing something that is very contrary to that is almost you know for certain of our plaintiffs has almost been a worse and more distressing experience than you know, at least they imagine it would be at a place that didn't represent itself as, you know, such a safe place, if you will.
3: Well, ladies, it looks like we've just about to reach the end of our program. would like to invite, take this moment to... Uh, offer you both the opportunity to share your final thoughts as well as your contact information. So, Catherine, I know that you were going to make a comment there, but I'll turn it over to you first.
1: No, I, I think that these kinds of lawsuits and a lot of the other issues that we're seeing in the legal industry are encouraging. Whether it's getting rid of arbitration agreements, some firms are getting rid of partners that have been accused of inappropriate behavior, um, and you know the transparency that comes with lawsuits. Um, I think that these are all positives for the industry. Over But we still have an awful long way to go. Uh, My contact information is Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, at AboveTheLaw.com or on Twitter at Catherine1.
3: Great. Thank you very much. And Deborah,
1: I absolutely agree with Catherine. I am
0: incredibly optimistic as I see You know, people who do feel able increasingly to come forward and address these issues. I think we are moving hopefully at a you know, an accelerated pace toward a more equitable profession. Um, and I so appreciate all of the people working toward this end in their different ways, from the Pipeline Parity Project to Above the Law, um, shedding light on all of these issues and helping people make career choices that will be Um, you know, successful for them. So thank you so much for having us.
3: Great. And would you like to provide our listeners the opportunity to contact you and where they can find you?
0: Sure, absolutely. I am embarrassed to say that I am not on Twitter, although I'm told that that I ought to be, but I am d-m-a-r-c-u-s-e at sanfordheisler.com.
3: Great. Well, thank you very much. That brings us to the end of our show. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at legaltalknetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer.
2: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.